Hello and welcome to the last Faber podcast of 2013. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to have as my guest on this programme historical novelist Maria McCann. This is Maria's second appearance on the programme. I interviewed her back in 2010 about her previous novel, The Wilding, which was long-listed for the Orange Prize. That novel was set during the Restoration in 1672. For her new book, Ace King Knave, Maria has moved forward almost a century to the Georgian England of the mid-1760s. Ace King Knave is the tale of two young women, Sophia, born into the Somerset aristocracy, and Betsy Ann, the daughter of travelling fair people, and their relationship with the same man, though they each know him under a different name. To Sophia, he's Mr Zedland, with a townhouse in London and heir to an estate in Essex. The man Betsy Ann knows as Ned, however, comes from a much more disreputable background. The Georgian capital is a world where everyone, whether high-born or low, is looking for the great chance. London, as Sophia is to discover, is not like the countryside, where a lady travelling within her own district can expect to be recognised and looked up to. Here, life is teeming and anonymous. The most infamous women go lavishly caparisoned and keep carriages, so that even the practised eye can scarcely distinguish virtue from vice. That problem of telling virtue from vice, the fraud and the trickster from the genuine and trustworthy, runs through the whole book. Every human interaction, from a game of cards to a marriage, is fraught with the danger of things turning out to be not what they seem. The high-born can take pleasure dabbling in the mud, and the low-born can pass themselves off as their betters. Social interaction becomes a complex game of trying to read the manners, clothes and language of other people, while trying not to let too much of your own hand show. Highly appealing terrain for a novelist, and indeed for the reader. When I visited Maria at home in Somerset recently, I began by remarking that for a historical novelist, changing period must be a very big decision. I didn't realise quite how big it was, and I should have done, really. I mean, it's obvious, really, when you think about it. I thought that I wanted something which was less religiously focused, and I wanted to move into a century which offered new possibilities, looking at civil society and fakery and social mobility. And I think once you've started looking at a new period as a historical novelist, you start to fall in love with it. So that's your new love now. And you cast off your old love. So how do you actually begin once you've taken that decision, once you've been sort of seduced by the, by the idea of, in this case, the, the mid-18th century? What do you actually do to feel your way into it? Well, I wasn't sure to start with that it would be the mid-18th century. So I tend to read quite generally and to read all sorts of material. And gradually, gradually, the period coalesces. So as the plot develops, I start thinking, oh, well, if that happened, it would have to be after the bringing in of the, the new post-chaises and so on. But I don't, I don't read just for that year at all. I, I read all round it. And as you suggest... You're operating, I guess, at many levels. You need to know about the practicalities of life, you know, how things operated, how they worked, mm. but also how, as you were saying, with, with religion being uh, on, on the wane, how people thought and what was in their heads and how they interacted with, with each other. Yes. <laughs> um, well, that's an absolutely huge thing, and you can never do all of it in, in one novel. There's always a very narrow focus, but I have got two people in Ace King Knave, uh, two heroines, 
one who is really very gently brought up and quite religious and tortured by conscience um, when she does things that she thinks are wrong. She really wants to do things right. The other one is far more of a pragmatist and has had a very different kind of life and exposure to quite different influences. I find myself equally sympathetic to both. I hope that readers will be as well. I at least hope that people won't think that that I'm favouring one over the other. I'm I'm really interested in the the problems that each of these women has, these imaginary women. It, I mean, it seemed to me I, I I did think about that that very question because it seemed to me that Sophia, who is the the privileged woman perhaps receives less sympathy earlier on in the book, but that you develop it. And that was what you were sort of working to do, to, to take a character who maybe on, you know, she seems privileged, she seems cut off from the realities of life, and you kind of bring her to a position where the reader feels more sympathy because she's actually learned a lot about life. Well, she's on a journey of discovery. Sorry, very trite expression, but she is on a, you know, she's on a learning curve, as they say. And at the, at the beginning of it, yeah, she, she is perhaps a bit complacent. But I don't think she's ever totally complacent because she feels that she's in a very unequal marriage, that her partner is far superior to herself. Uh, well, at the start of the novel, she's not yet married, but she can't understand why she should have been chosen. And she has a, a feeling that it can't be right and that surely something will, will happen to spoil it because she's been so so fortunate. The other woman's story is an uncovering of the past more than uh, a moving forward into the future so that while one moves forward the other one is gradually uncovering the truth about her own past and then they move forward together although not necessarily I'm not implying that they you know are completely united or friendly towards each other there's a kind of rapprochement but it's a very tentative one I think. I think Sophia is always um is always a little bit vulnerable. I've started calling her Sophia now. I think I started thinking of her as Sophia, but then I adopted a dog called Sophie and I started mixing them up all the time every time I spoke, so I think she'll have to be Sophia from now on. How much were you thinking about the freedom which was possible for women to to enjoy in the 18th century when you were, when you were planning this novel? Because it, that's, that's clearly changed mm. from, from your previous novels. I mean, it's still very much circumscribed, but the character like like Betsy Ann, she's she's prey to all sorts of external forces, but she also has some degree of autonomy of action. Mm. I think she's got a degree of autonomy of action because, in a way, nobody cares about her. So she's she's free to fight her way. She has very little to lose. One thing that did strike me was the huge gap between men and women at this time. If you were lucky and you managed to make a companionable and loving marriage in which you were respected by your husband, you could be very happy, but it's fair to say that chance was against you. If you were unhappy, you had to put up with it, and if you were absolutely wretched, it was almost impossible for a woman to get divorced. Your husband's unfaithfulness didn't matter at all. The fact that he might be supporting a mistress and a whole family by this mistress was not really grounds for you to be able to get rid of him. And, and also, I think, when you think of the 18th century, I was looking at something called 18th century pleasures or Georgian pleasures at the British Library recently. I went to the first day of their exhibition as it opened and there was a section of, of Georgian pleasures and actually it was really all men, sports, gaming, betting. You know, women, I suppose, had dress and they had cards and they had entertaining and what a woman hoped for, really, when she married, the pleasures she hoped for was the pleasures of sociability. 
and to be able to invite people to their to the house and to be respected and liked and have a warm supportive group of friends and if your husband turned out to be impossible you were robbed of that you couldn't bring friends home you couldn't invite people or you couldn't go out or if you brought them he ruined everything so women's pleasures tended to be in a very narrow range and of course all the kinds of pleasures you know known roughly vaguely as illicit for a woman to enter those meant that she had to enter a very different kind of life altogether whereas a man could actually bridge those worlds and not suffer socially. It's very much a novel of the city, in particular London, but Bath also features, and we might talk about that in a bit, but but London and its illicit pleasures are very much omnipresent mm. in, in this book. Tell me how you, um, how you researched that. What sort of drew you particularly to that? <laughs> I think I'm always drawn to a kind of seamy underside of things. I always want to know what's underneath the surface. I was very interested in the adventures of um, of Egan's The Adventures of Tom and Jerry, in, in which Corinthian Tom and his um, country cousin Jerry Hawthorne take a series of journeys through the underbelly of London. And they are, in fact, respectable men on the surface, but they are able to, to go into the places where respectable women could never go. So I looked at quite a lot of those. I was interested in um, Dan Cruikshank's work on London. I'm trying to remember, oh, The Secret History of George in London, that's it. Wendy Moore's Wedlock, about how a woman was... Um, well, that's really not about London, anyway. Hallie Rubenhold's work. There's quite a lot now uh, about the other side of London. I'm trying to think of the, the best way to put it, really. The, the extramarital delights available to men might be one way of putting it. And you mentioned Hallie Rubenhold, and her book is about Harris's List, and Harris's List features at many points in this book, and it was basically a guide to prostitutes for their male punters. Yes, that's right, a sort of catalogue. Um, it seems that people paid to be put in. So in my novel I have a character who's... Um, abbess or mother or board has paid a certain amount to have her put into the entered into the catalogue. Harris's list was originally a list run by a pimp called Jack Harris so that was the Harris but uh, Harris sold the rights to it and he sold it to a wannabe poet called Sam Derrick, an Irishman who gave it a particular style and Sam Derrick became master of ceremonies at Bath. So his job was to maintain order, decency and gentility at Bath. And all the time he was making money from this catalogue of whores, which was a double role that he managed to keep concealed uh, until his death. Although I imagine that some people must have known. But certainly I don't think any of his respectable female clientele would have known at Bath, the people he was introducing and leading out in the dance and so on, they wouldn't have known. I think he's a really good example of how a man could live a double life and get away with it. And that, it seemed to me, to play, played into the bigger themes of the novel. It's not the case that the, the seamy underside of life is demarcated off from the rest of life. There's all sorts of interpenetration, if you'll, if you'll pardon the pun, between the two. Yes, um, quite a lot of, of building speculation must have been undertaken. Dan Cruikshank, for example, suggests must have been undertaken not specifically in order to build red light districts, but with the knowledge that the people who were likely to occupy these rapidly built houses were probably connected in some way with the sex trade. The women were actresses, they were models for well-known artists, and quite a few of them, the women who were actresses, married out, for example, and even entered the aristocracy. 
So at every stage you, you get this linking of um, respectability and the secret life of George in London, which isn't all that secret, but woe betide the woman who crosses in the wrong direction. That focus on the appearance of things leads to anxiety, doesn't it? But if you're able to tell in society where some, you know, to, to able to place someone in society and, and tell if they, are, if they are properly genteel or if they're perhaps someone pretending, there's quite a lot of anxiety of that sort. I think there was quite a lot of anxiety about people not being readily identifiable as belonging to a particular social class. There was anxiety about what was called luxury, middle class people owning beautiful objects, having leisure, dressing in finery, and foreign visitors frequently remarked that English maidservants, who often received the cast-offs of their mistresses, weren't necessarily identifiable as being servants. Some of those foreign visitors would have expected to find servants wearing, for example, in Europe, a traditional costume from their region and to work in that, or some kind of maid's uniform. But in fact, in 18th century Britain, they, they wore the clothes cast off by the mistress and therefore you couldn't tell. And of course, many of the women who were no better than they should be and who were uh, successful and powerful women in the sex trade, either because they had very rich clients or protectors or because they were running other women as a business, were very grandly dressed and people complained too that you couldn't tell the difference between them and respectable ladies until you saw the vast crowds of men presumably flocking to talk to them and to acknowledge them. And the, the deck of cards, which plays a large part in the book, seemed to me a very good analogue for that, where everything seems to have its assigned value, but by le jardin, you can, you can sort of suddenly flip things and things can turn out very different from what the, the punter expects. Yes, I, I, th I think faking and, and surface and game-playing is one of the important themes in the novel, certainly, and it's one of the things that drew me to the 18th century. Um, so did you, did you investigate card games and, and card sharps and that, all that, that side of things? I started to investigate and then realised that I didn't actually want to get into reproducing with total accuracy exactly what people did, because I wanted there to be some mystery in um, the Spanish card trick, um, which is mentioned, and also whether Betsy Ann can do this thing that she does, the bridge of cards from hand to hand. I don't even know if it's physically possible, but I wanted something magical about it. You can look on YouTube and you can see all kinds of things demonstrated, but I decided not to go down that route, and partly because I didn't want to introduce anything that was ahistorical. So I, I left that as um, a trick, which is not revealed, but what I did look at was one of Bo Nash's letters, which is reproduced in a book by Edith Sitwell, in which he talks in general terms about how sharps operate. He points out that the good ones play a very, very long game and they don't win huge amounts, but they just do enough to make sure that at the end of the year they are uncaught, unsuspected, and they turn a steady profit. That the spectacular win is, you know, for the likes of Charles James Fox and so on, the other people who, are, who aren't actually sharps. They're the rich people who are being fleeced by sharps if they're unlucky. The sharp is very difficult, he says, to, to distinguish from a gentleman. It's very difficult to catch him out. You can give him a sealed pack and very quickly, well, he says often they work in pairs, working together 
having shuffled the cards once or twice or three times, they can have all of the cards, the, the big cards, exactly where they want them and give them to who they want. And he says, there's no way. You know, for many years, Bo Nash says, because he had been a, a gambler himself, he says for many years he tried to contain or constrict their activities. It was almost impossible. They're just too clever. But he says, you may infallibly know them by the fact that they are usually not gentlemen. So the thing to do is to engage them in conversation, which will draw upon the education that they would require in order to, to be a gentleman. They can learn the, the gestures and they can have the clothing and they can develop the manner in a completely convincing way. But what they can't do is make up for the education they never had. So that's what you talk about if you want to find out if you're being if you're playing with one of these dangerous gentlemen. One of the um, the perennial questions about the past is, what did it smell like? And it's very clear from, from this book that you thought very hard about that because the smell of things is palpable on, on, on many of its pages. I'm always interested in smell. I myself don't have a very good sense of smell or haven't had for some years and I really miss being able to smell things. Occasionally my sense of smell returns and it's it's lovely when it does, even if the smell itself is not that great. It's just like getting a, you know, getting your hearing back or something. Yes, I am really interested in that and I, I don't think that's ahistorical. I think people of the time were very aware of the smells. I mean, stinking um, is a term of abuse that goes way, way, way back. People are always complaining about smells. I think in 18th century England people were starting to become much cleaner than they had been but I, I think if you look at if you look at histories of cleanliness there's a lovely one called um, I think it's just called clean by Virginia Smith people have always tried to be clean except in rare instances like the early Christians when people were actively trying to be filthy to mortify the body people have always been aware in some way of hygiene and cleanliness and it's been associated as I think she points out with with mating with love with beauty so it's always had a very good press and I think in 18th century England that you know there is an awareness there's a desire for plumbing there's the new river company you know people are, are getting more and more water uh, freely available but at the same time there are dirty habits that people have and people who empty the chamber pot when they're not supposed to and so on because they can't be bothered to go up or down all the stairs. Yeah, so there's something particularly repulsive which Betsy Ann feels and therefore the reader feels mm. because her common-law husband, Sam Shiner, is a resurrectionist. So he, yes. he comes to bed literally smelling of the grave. That's, that's, that, that, again, is very struck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it's like a sort of physical presence in, in the room with them. Yes. Oh, it's not to yes. Yes. It, it's it's symbolic of a kind of rot that's set in because his his life is on on the skids. It's going downward, and he was once a very skilled criminal, but now he can't carry out that any longer because he's been injured uh, in a way that makes it impossible. So um, yes, his smell is the outward sign of an inward disgrace, if you like. But the other the other thing, apart from the smell that this that really permeates the novel, is the language. The, the book comes with a glossary. There are lots of eighteenth century terms, often slang terms, vulgar terms. Mm. Tell me about, about how you um, sort of judged how much you wanted that to permeate the book. That is, is, is a really tough call. I, I wasn't sure about it as I was writing. I, I think, I, I believe I got it right by the end. Not everybody may agree. I mean, the easiest way to get hold of the cant terms and slang terms is through Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, but I had to check and make sure that they were 
you know, check them through the through other sources and make sure that they are around at, at this particular period, which is approximately 1765. Did you want to be absolutely historically accurate, or was there sometimes a term you couldn't resist? You know, even if it was a little bit early or a little bit late. You can't always tell. Um, the reason it's 1765 is that around that time there was briefly, well, there are various things. There, there was briefly a period, a fashion fad for young men to stop powdering their hair. And so I, when I discovered this, I was quite pleased about that because I actually can't see the main male character powdered up. So I thought if I want him to be without his, his powder or his, his wig, I can, I can do it if I put it in that year. And then, I mean, and it was around that time anyway, but to find that that was possible, you know, that was a real bonus. By the time you've been working with the terms for a while, they've become familiar to you and the, to the reader they're not necessarily... I wasn't sure about having a glossary. In the end, it was discussed, and yes, I agreed that we would. The reason was, I mean, I was very keen on it at first, and then when I saw that it was quite long, I thought, oh my God, you know, if people turn to the back of the novel and they see this, they won't think they can read the book. I mainly used it just to check, or just out of curiosity. I think mm. so often, as I think you say, from the context, it's yes. really pretty clear yes. what's, what's being referred to. Yes, you, you do. You, you try your very hardest, of course, to contextualise it. But I did want that feeling of something alien. I, I did want the low-life characters to have a language that marked them off. If I think I wanted just enough to show that there was something different about... that Their take on life was essentially different, and it was coded into this different language. We talked about how things smelled and how people spoke. And the other thing which struck me was how people are, in the, particularly women, how they are in their bodies, how they, sort of, how they are as embodied selves in their clothes and in their... Is that, is that just something which, which comes in, in the writing that you don't, you don't sort of interrogate intellectually, but you just have a sense of how this person kind of inhabits their skin? I think I probably don't interrogate it to any great degree, because I tend to work more instinctively than that, at least initially. But I did know that posture was immensely important. I had been reading the letters of Mrs Delaney, she is very insistent that I think her granddaughter should be brought up to bridal, which meant to hold your head up and to be able to curtsy without sagging or drooping or bending forward or whatever. And the little girl was only about two or three, uh, and her grandmother was already very insistent. Because it was an important marker that you could hold yourself well, this was what dancing lessons were all about as well. It was not only so that you could be sociable with the right people, but so that you always knew how to hold yourself. A gentleman apparently had to keep his feet slightly turned out and one arm in his waistcoat or waistcoat, as I expect they'd call it. And dancing masters advertised targeting that market, people who were anxious about being clumsy, not only to teach them to dance, but to teach them to move with grace, with natural grace, though of course it wasn't natural. And so it was it was a class marker. The thing that, that, that I spent most time thinking about was stays, I suppose, or corsets as we'd call them now. Stays are controversial because most of the people I read up on stays tend to take the view that in fact women probably found them supportive and approved of them. Whereas I think they must have been constricting and difficult, especially. But I think probably, actually, it, the whole lot was incredibly constricting. If, if you think about 
what it must have been like living with those heavy dresses, with the layers of things that women wore, and the stays. It must have been incredibly cumbersome. There's some Thomas Hardy poem about not going out on a wet day, I can't remember what it's called, and I remember talking about it with a group of students and pointing out that before you had uh, washing machines and easily washable fabrics and drip-dry things and God knows what else, going out for a Victorian woman on a wet day on a potentially dirty street not only would there be a lot of laundry to do, but actually your clothes would become heavy and stick to themselves and, and you know, imprison your legs and, and be utter misery. And so in the 18th century, I suppose you have the same problems. Well, if it was wet, you wouldn't go out unless you went in a sedan chair, which would drop you from the inside of one house into the inside of another, so you never needed you know, to get wet. And I can't help feeling, despite everybody's authority, that it was probably inconvenient to have tight stays. But perhaps people didn't lace very tight. When you see stays in museums, they're often quite big. So they're not necessarily just for wasp-wasted women. One of the characters through whose eyes we see what's going on is an African slave called by various names, mm. Fortunate or Titus by his, mm. by his new master, or Lucky at the end. Mm. And that really introduces a very a radically different perspective mm. on the story. Tell me how you see that playing into the, mm. the, the bigger picture of the novel. At one point, his master says to him, we were born outside the circle, you and I. I think that's how he puts it. And he's another person who doesn't fit in and never will. And, and radically so. Yes, and radically so. At one point he thinks he sees another African whom he might be able to talk to, but when he meets this man they can only communicate, uh, well, it, he's not from the same place and, and so he doesn't have the same language and it, it's a huge disappointment. I'm always interested in underdogs and, and strangers. So he is one of those, but he's also used to play against the wife in the household who is actually an underdog and very badly treated, but the slave whose English is not great and who, there are still many things that he doesn't understand about English life. He's not been in England very long when the book opens. He can't see her position at all, partly because of cultural misunderstanding and partly because he just doesn't have good enough English. And so he can't see that this woman is actually a victim and the master of the household is in some ways playing them off against one another. Although part of the novel is set in Bath in the early early chapters, we're several decades before Jane Austen, but it's hard not to think how very un-Austinian <laughs> your novel is. I mean, was, that, was that something that occurred to you in the, in the, in the writing? I mean, you, you know, the, the cant, the underworld, mm. the, the grave robbers, the, mm. the, the black slave's point of view, it's just, mm. it's, it's, it's worlds away. And yet you, you intersect with, mm. with that yes. genteel society yes. and, and Bath and yes. the, the season. <laughs> well, OK, well, the grave robbers aren't in Bath, of course, but I, I think Jane Austen might not have been totally surprised. Um, I mean, the, the, the view of Bath is more like, like Smollett's, although I've, I've read somewhere recently that Smollett himself actually rather liked Bath but I think it's Humphrey Clinker. They go to Bath and it stinks and it's foul and the people are, are all tatty and smelly and it's just not at all what they expected. Well, everyone's um, on the make. I mean, throughout the whole book, well, everyone is, you say, yes. everyone's looking for the, the main, yes. the great chance. Yes. Well, I, I think that's probably fairly true of Bath, actually. 
Yes, there would be people who'd come there wanting, struggling to regain health, which is a form of being on the make, I suppose, though not necessarily an unscrupulous one. There would be people there who were aiming to get as much money out of them legally with food and accommodation and clothing and fashions and all the rest of it. And there'd be people who'd be trying to fleece them illegally. And actually, Jane Austen deeply disliked Bath. And I believe that when she first heard that they were going to Bath, she fainted. The news was so unwelcome. I'm, I'm sorry, Bath. <laughs> if you're, I'm if you're listening. barred from Bath now. <laughs> but although Bath is forever associated with Jane Austen, she didn't particularly like it. And in fact, if you think about Northanger Abbey, where they go to Bath, the heroine is fastened upon by a selfish and rapacious young woman who's on the make. I was talking to Maria McCann. Her novel... Ace King Knave is out now in hardback, and Maria's previous book, The Wilding, is available in paperback. For more information about both, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. And the complete Faber podcast archive including my interview with Maria about The Wilding, is also available on SoundCloud. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, and indeed for this year, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Happy reading, and goodbye.